0: And when you have built-in opportunity like that, the world is your oyster and can help you do an even better job with your doctor work than if you didn't have the opportunity.
1: Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians we work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode 176 of APM Success. I must confess, I'm really excited for today's guest. I was just talking with Dr. Gretchen Green a minute ago and saying, I've been waiting a long time to have this conversation, which we're going to have today. Specifically, Dr. Green is a diagnostic radiologist. She's been in private practice since 2006, but the reason she's here today is she has served as an expert witness in nearly 200 cases on both the plaintiff and defense side. And her expert witnessing work has helped her transition to part-time clinical work about five or six years ago. She has this awesome Facebook group, which we will link to in the show notes, called The Expert Resource. And I've spent a little time in there, and it's really awesome, the conversations that are being had and the way that doctors are being equipped to do one of the things that's really one of my passions which is to use your medical degree and specialty specific training in a different way in a non-clinical way but in a way that augments your journey towards financial independence. So Dr. Green, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So, tell us a little bit about, you know, you were in practice starting in 2006 in private practice and eventually, you know, you're on this 10-year journey and you went part-time clinically ultimately. Tell us about your story and how does expert witnessing fit into that?
0: Yeah, it it's sort of a chapter story. You know, we, we go out of training and we think about that first chapter and I don't know that doctors get so much thought into what comes after chapter one. It's sort of like you go from chapter one to the epilogue, right? There's career and then there's retirement. But what I've learned through all this process is there are many phases within employment. And for me, partnership was the way to go. I was a partner for 10 years in a a large private practice in North Carolina. And I really got into the business aspects, really loved learning about finances and how you build a practice, how you look at marketing strategy. That was my first taste of how to do those things because it wasn't my own practice that I started as so many physicians traditionally have. So... My journey in expert witness work happened the way it does, I think, for most doctors, which is I got a call out of the blue. A lawyer's office called me. Hey, can you review this case? It's an obstetrical ultrasound. I said, sure. I'm fellowship trained in obstetrical ultrasound and women's imaging. Totally understand this. Did the case, reviewed it, went to have a conversation, and she asked me to send an invoice. And that's where I went blank. And I thought, well, I don't understand how to send an invoice. I I don't know a fee schedule. What do I charge? How do I put this in a piece of paper? How do I even do this from a legal or a business standpoint? It was a total just black box. And so I muddled my way through. And then I know a lot of people at that point would just say, oh, forget it. I don't know how to do this at all. I'm never going to do this again. But for me, it opened chapter two, which was how do I learn to do these things that are the mechanics of the job? not the medicine. The medicine I know, but the mechanics of reviewing a legal case, talking about it with the right terms, and interacting in a business standpoint to do it, that's what I needed to learn next. So I did that, read books, went to conferences, put my skills to work, built a business, ended up going part-time because in part of that financial flexibility. But that only came much later after building the business up.
1: So when was that first case that you just described.
0: Yeah, the first case was about 2015 that I got my first phone call. Oh, okay. And it's it's interesting cuz I'm always asked what was it that got me started in expert witness work? And so that's the that's the technical answer of mm-hmm. it got me started because I got a call to do a case. But the deeper question was why did I say yes? And that's because some years previously I had been sued as a radiologist. And so I went through that process, learned everything I could, really dove into the process and was very actively involved. At the end of the case, my own defense attorney said, you know, you did such a great job with your own case. When this is all said and done, you should consider being an expert witness. And I knew we'd had to retain one, but I never knew or heard of what that job or role was. And so he presented to me as a way of applying my skills that would benefit others in a similar situation and benefit the process. And so that, when later the opportunity actually presented itself, that's why I said
1: yes. Let me take this moment to just share with our listeners for, especially for the residents and fellows who are just wrapping up training and looking at their first job right now is like prime time. I'm looking at a lot of employment agreements right now. It's very important that you sign an employment agreement that allows you to participate in outside activities such as expert witnessing. There's a lot of employers who will either say categorically, you can't do anything interesting outside of your W2 gig, expert witnessing being one of those things. Or another thing I've seen is like, well, you can, um, you can do things, but it's subject to board approval, and we're going to take fifty percent of any of the fees earned. And I am not a big fan of those employment agreements on behalf of my physician clients. It will not surprise our listeners to hear. So remember, if you're interested in this stuff and we're going to talk about some really interesting components of this today, it starts with signing an employment agreement that lets you do this kind of work. I could not
0: agree more. And the the even bigger concept here is that a contract is not something you are just given and that you it's a yes, no decision, sign or don't sign. That depends on the negotiation and the discussions you have with a group. And as for much as medicine has been morphing into mostly an employed type position, this is more important than ever. When statistically we have fewer physicians who are partners or owners of the practice, you have got to safeguard your ability to earn or do activities in your own time in whatever way you want to do. Because once you get bitten by the bug, you know, an expert witness work for me was the gateway. That was the, the business bug that bit me. And I realized, well, if I can do this, what else can I do? But I would never have predicted in the future that I would then expand into real estate investment. In fact, I was categorically against doing it. I thought I'd never, never get into real estate, never do this, never do that. And then it's so interesting how life changes and opportunities present themselves. And when you have built in opportunity like that, the world is your oyster and can help you do an even better job with your doctor work than if you didn't have the opportunity.
1: Could not agree more. And as a lifetime business person who got bit by the bug you described in about seventh grade when me and my buddy from class built a little wagon, put two lawnmowers on it and started pulling it up and down the street, I got my taste of that very early on and I do take great joy in seeing the light bulb go off for the physicians for whom it will and saying like, wow, I can, this is, I can take control of my own destiny in a very different kind of way. It's a beautiful thing to behold.
0: And for physicians too, it's one of the first times that I think doing expert witness work where they get to set their rates. Which is both, you know, it's a little terrifying, but also very empowering. So for physicians, it's especially important, just like you would for a job, to know what is the regional and, you know, even hyper-local employment data. What are your salary ranges? What is the valuation of your time doing this work? The same thing is true for expert witness work. Physicians should be charging between 500 to 900 an hour. And, you know, I would pause for a second usually when I say that to people, because most doctors, by this point, their jaws would drop. And say, well, wait, wait, I'm not making that clinically. So how is that okay to do with this? Isn't my time worth just a dollar amount? But it's not. It's just specific to the activity that you're doing. That's what this work pays. Notice that I said work pays. It's you're paid for the time that you spend objectively reviewing cases. You're not paid for an opinion, because you know, we always want to do this work objectively. And with regards to putting our medical opinions in place that are supported by our skills, training, and expertise and research on the case if needed. But this is something that's a great skill for doctors to learn that applies back into other spheres in their life is becoming comfortable with setting a fee schedule that's appropriate for those ranges to knowing how to negotiate contracts and have a contract that works for expert witness work. It just gives structure, clear communication to what we do and putting in some of those basic business skills to to safeguard your time and make sure that you're appropriately compensated for the work that
1: you do. So a fee schedule is I think a reasonable first step or one of the first steps. And this is something I've actually helped clients build these. So I'm curious I'm curious to hear your feedback on this. What kinds of things should be in a fee schedule? And you gave us a range on a per hour basis, but I know there's other components. If I'm in court, maybe it's different. If I'm traveling, maybe it's different. Is there a per diem? Are there expenses? Can I stay at the Ritz and just expense that? How? Does, what kinds of things should someone be thinking about if they want to build a fee schedule?
0: A fee schedule will be a dedicated component of an expert witness contract. So when I wrote mine, I took into account my location. So if I were traveling to a, a place to do deposition, which is uncommon, normally lawyers travel to you, or now they're usually by Zoom. So there's usually not a a risk of travel for those, but for trial, for example, yes, you would look at issues of travel. Do you live in a local area with a big metropolitan airport, or do you have to build in some specifics where connecting flights need to be booked in a certain way? So daily rates typically would apply to testimony for trial or possibly deposition if they reserve more than several hours. People often ask about cancellation clauses. Because if you don't have these built in with our clinical schedules being pretty far in advance, you have to protect that time so that a cancellation a few days before, which not only prevented patients from being able to see you, but can result in you not having recovery of that lost income. So cancellation clauses will help protect that. And that's more specific to your individual schedule that you work with clinically than a blanket statement. but. 2 weeks, 4 weeks, these are ranges that people will sometimes work with to build in. Most of my work is done on an hourly rate. I do charge a retainer. It's 5 hours at $700 per hour. And so that $3,500 is paid up front. And I then utilize that time and then bill at $700 an hour afterward. Fortunately, you know, there are a lot of tools that we can use to make the business angles better. So... You know, I I use software to help with that, which not only bills and invoices, but also tracks my finances. And I have a great CPA uh, with whom I do proactive tax planning. You know, we've, over the years, we've slowly added complexity. So, you know, a small business like this, you know, only small because it's defined by the number of employees, not what you earn, gives you a lot of other financial opportunities, retirement plans, and other tax planning strategies that you know we can touch on if you like but just fee schedule is as simple as what you earn in a given time period and how you schedule but it also later feeds into larger financial decisions
1: makes perfect sense and i want to give another plug here for the facebook group the expert resource i was in there just this morning doing a little bit of research and kind of just perusing recent conversations and i saw this come up the, the question about cancellation and a, uh, a physician was saying, yeah, I got canceled on short notice and I blocked out the clinical time. So I don't have a bunch of patients lined up. And a couple of days before they pulled the plug on the deposition that was supposed to happen. And then I think this physician specifically was able to backfill that, but they were talking about the policy around that. So this is an important consideration that you want to make sure, and this is where um, doctors need to think a little bit like lawyers, in the way that they bill their time. You mentioned a retainer, you get paid up front so that if you do a bunch of work, you're not fighting to get the first dollar. It's the, <laughs> the conversation is the other direction and you can let them come and get their money. And if they've already signed on the dotted line and have committed you to this work and then you've done the work, then you're in a, a much better position. And the attorney that you're working with is probably going to get that because that's how they operate.
0: That's true. And when you have a good contract that deals with these kinds of situations, even to where it specifies who pays your deposition fee. So, for example, my contract specifies that my retaining attorney pays my deposition fee in advance, and the details are in the document. But, And even so, sometimes the opposing side, who's actually the one who does the deposition, will pay me directly. That's fine. I I don't return the check and then make someone else reissue a check. But that safeguard is there so that we know who is accountable for that type of prepayment. And... You know there's just been one or two situations where people have asked for exceptions to my deposition policy and then later did cancel and then later asked, "Hey, can we get that money back?" And all I had to do was say, "Here's my contract. Here's you know you canceled on day X. The deposition was scheduled for day y, and you know, it was the termination of the case, so there was no moving forward with anything. But my contract clearly laid out those details and really clarified communication.
1: Uh, So you mentioned that this is just the fee schedule itself is essentially exhibit A of an 11 page agreement, perhaps that you're making with an attorney. So talk about the first 10 pages. How did you construct that? How do you go? How does a physician who wants to take the first step here go about building this agreement? And maybe it's just call a good attorney. (laughs) yes
0: and i think working with someone who has experience doing this is helpful you know my particular um i actually worked with two attorneys of of my i have a team of attorneys for all my various <laughs> things that i do in my life they're all wonderful advisors to me so i used one who brought business expertise and then one who brought healthcare contract expertise and i combined those two I did use a template of an expert witness contract as an example of content to work with, but then we customized it. So mine's a seven-page document, double-spaced. I actually get complimented on my contract because lawyers can see this is the work of really good attorneys with mindfulness towards fairness, right? It is a double-sided document in that it is written from both parties' perspectives. And that is visible when you read my contract. It talks about roles and responsibilities of the expert, of me, of the lawyer, and the details that are in the performance of the work, such as providing me with all necessary documents to do my job, notifying me if there are legal motions that have been filed, dates that might impact my involvement of deposition, trial, the uh, fill fee and billing structures there along with going towards defining day rates, travel policies, and also availability. So I do revise this uh, from one year to the next. I'll go through and I'll put in my dates for that year that I will carve out as not being available. That has variable success. And as the court schedule has gotten so irregular while, you know, in covid That's been something that's changed over time. So just because you say you're not available on a certain date does not necessarily mean that you're off the hook if they do happen to go to trial then. So you know that is something that's always the case with expert witness work is that you cannot control the trial schedule, but lawyers will work with you the best that they can to reserve those dates in advance and not ask you to block two full weeks. Depositions now are almost all by Zoom. So the work, and most cases never go to trial, you know, 5% or fewer cases. So doing this work has really never been easier for doctors to fit into their busy schedules on hours that work for them.
1: Awesome. So for our listeners, apmsuccess.com slash 176, I'm going to make a list of all the resources that we discussed today, as much as Dr. Green is willing and able to share, plus some of the resources that I have constructed over my time of helping clients think about this want to get you connected to get the ball rolling with starting up your own work in this area. So after the agreement is constructed, the fee schedule is appended for, in your case, Dr. Green, somebody called you. So maybe that was a step that you didn't have to pursue, but for somebody who's thinking, I want to do this and I don't want to sit around and wait for my phone to ring. How do you recommend that someone goes about making the first move?
0: Yes. And that comes into marketing. So if you want to make yourself known as someone who is available, ready and willing to do expert witness work, there are many options. You can start purely organically. If you know lawyers, you can contact lawyers you know, look for word of mouth referrals. You can be a little bit more accelerated in your process to do that by listing on expert witness websites. In my course, Expert Witness Startup School, I do teach a module specifically on marketing where I talk about making your own database of lawyers. How do you grow your own list and your network of contacts and then use that to reach out directly to lawyers to provide helpful information about things that are topics that are pertinent to your practice and also help you get retained in areas that that highlight your expertise.
1: Someone with whom I've corresponded a bit in the past, Dr. David Gutman, that name may ring a bell. I know he's someone who's participated in your group. He, I think, has been a he reached out like a couple of years ago. We got connected through the podcast and I know he is someone who has participated in your community. He has a great website. I connected with him. I'm hoping to get him on the show sometime here in the future. Anyone who's interested in like an example of what you might do if you want to go about marketing, his domain is dr, D-O-C-T-O-R, David Gutman, G-U-T-M-A-N.com. And you know, it's a very simple virtual storefront essentially to lay out your expertise and a lot of your sort of professional background. And it could be as simple as that. So we'll link to that one in the show notes too. It's, I think it makes a lot of, and you know, in this day and age, standing up a very simple website, there's a lot of platforms that make that easy. And there's also developers who'll do it for a few hundred bucks, which the first 45 minutes of your first billable hour would pay for that. And it's tax deductible now that you're a small business owner. So lots of, uh, lots of cool things there.
0: That's true. And I had a website. I started out early on. I had a website ready to go. I, launched it the day that I began the business and in during my job transition period. And it's a decision that every expert will need to make for themselves, whether or not they feel a website is going to augment or to potentially take away. And that's what experts kind of have to straddle. We straddle this you know, land of living in Switzerland where we want to be the neutral party. We use our knowledge and we're objective. Anything that you put out publicly can be and occasionally will be used against you in deposition. And so you have the responsibility to make sure a website is maintained. You will face questions potentially by opposing attorneys who will accuse you potentially of of advertising and that that's somehow negative. Never mind the fact that when you look at law firms, almost every one of them has a website and they're all recruiting, you know, call here for a free consultation. Every lawyer that I think I know of, basically, unless somebody has a super small one-man show practice, they've all got websites too. But that's not how depositions work. It doesn't go both ways. It only goes one way. So, you know, you can imagine I face questions in depositions about expert witness startup school. You know, what do I teach physicians about being experts? I... Had a deposition the other day where almost an hour was spent asking me not about the case, but only on the mechanics of expert witness startup school,
1: which... And then you sent them a bill.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, it was, you know, the time was paid for, but... Yeah, yeah. You know, so there is a bit of a double standard. Everything that I do in, whether it's my expert witness work or my teaching of physicians is always to help doctors use their skills in new and different ways to serve in the legal community just as we do in medicine and also to help us all keep active in medicine by having financial security. You know many of us were we're constantly facing declining reimbursements with employment model doctors are making less per hour. If we want this specialty to remain competitive attracting the best and brightest, if we want those people to be the ones who save our lives when we need them, then we have to provide ways to help physicians stay in the game, stay psychologically, financially, physically healthy. This is one puzzle piece. But everything that I do is working towards that highest goal, including the Facebook group, networking physicians together for more opportunities. There are usually more than one expert per case. These are complex, and so often there's an opportunity for physicians to reach out, find a colleague who may serve a niche need in a legal case, and that helps everyone because we have the again the best and brightest of minds who will lend that knowledge and educational effort towards helping legal cases go to the best resolution possible. But we can't do it if people uh, can't be uh, remunerated for their time and have the ability to serve in this way.
1: Could not agree more. And anyone watching us on the YouTube channel is just seeing my head bobbing up and down, (laughs) nodding emphatically like, yes, 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 yes. 110,000 doctors quit last year. That trend is like, to me says like, healthcare is going over a cliff in many regards. And that's a big complicated multifactorial problem with many stakeholders and I can't fix all of that. But if I can equip a handful of physicians to go a little further and a little more sustainably, that is very much the ethos of this show and why I'm really excited to be having this conversation. So there's probably listeners who their exposure to a deposition is limited to seeing a few episodes of Suits, which for me, that was everything I know about depositions largely has come from watching Suits. And so, you know, take us inside that conference room in a lawyer's office or inside the Zoom meeting now. And what should a physician who creates the fee schedule and the agreement, they do the marketing, they have an attorney who engages them, and then you have a deposition on the calendar, what should they expect?
0: Well, I've heard it described as a deposition is an interrogation, not a conversation. And so if you just begin with that in mind, I think that will probably prepare people better for how to behave in it. That being said, it's not personal. So you this is training into how these you know can stay as business type conversations. It is about the subject matter at hand. You will be asked questions about yourself. You should come prepared you know, with your CV know it cold and, you know, have it be the accurate reflection of what you have done professionally. You know the case, but the good news is it's an open book test. So when you have your materials organized in a way that you can reference and quickly uh, answer questions just accurately, factually, the best you can with respect to your opinions, you'll be in good condition for that. You'll have talked with the retaining attorney beforehand. So you'll know your plan and your themes of the case, how you plan to answer certain questions for consistency. Typically, the role of deposition is to get your opinions and set them prior to trial. And there are many times where you cannot add to those unless you get additional information later. So pretty much what you say at deposition is a practice for what you would say at trial. So, but there is some gamesmanship, I'll call it, you know, that goes into answering questions in a deposition type environment. So, that's why one of my modules is specifically on deposition. When people join my waitlist for the course, I send out informational emails and I talk about tips for things like deposition. How uh, do you bring your driver's license, for example? Do you bring your phone? There are those mechanics that you know are kind of out of the scope for today, but there's some of those things that you might not think about that help you to be more successful in what can be a, a challenging, you know, conversation slash interrogation but I've had them go every direction. 95% have been very professional, very to the point, talking about the case. The other handful, you know, where they start to get more personal or more adversarial, I think most of those backfire in the end. And I think the great majority of attorneys don't resort to those types of tactics. Most of them use the time more effectively and have better questions to ask.
1: Can you tell us a brief anecdote from one of those 5% that went sideways?
0: <laughs> yes. Again, you know, what are the motivations for even getting into this work to begin with when I trying to think how how best to tell this story. Lawyers will ask a series of questions to try to get information sequentially. And so there was a time when and you have to listen very quest very carefully to the question as it is asked. So one attorney asked me if I had been deposed before? And I answered the question, uh, yes, I had been deposed before, as an expert X number of times. He then asked, was I deposed as a defendant in a medical malpractice case before? And I said, yes, once before. So notice that, you know, it's flavors of the same kind of question. And then for whatever reason, he asked, well, have I been deposed in any other types of lawsuits? Sometimes they'll ask this question because they're fishing. They're hoping that maybe you have a felony in your past or the skeleton in your closet that they can reveal. And listening carefully to the question as it had been asked to me, I said, yes, I had been deposed after I was 17. And my father, who was a captain for United Airlines, had died in a plane crash. There were legal uh, ramifications from this, both you know wrongful death because it was a commercial airline crash. But there were also a lot of family and estate legal issues that came up because I was the only surviving child after a divorce years previously. And so as soon as I just replied non-defensively and factually that, yes, I had been deposed after my father was killed in a plane crash, that shut down that line of questioning immediately because he, he realized, oh, this is not the place that I want to go on the record of going. And interestingly, so when you do depositions, your transcripts, they're basically public record and lawyers know kind of how to find them and get a roadmap to finding your depositions. No one has ever asked me that since. And I think it's because once you've got that on the record, no one else wants to fall in that hole either. So it's interesting kind of what happens long term when you've done more of these over time. So, but again, that's very, very rare. And you you may have thought oh it would be a very difficult thing to be asked about my own uh, case in which i was sued as a defendant but this is how practice has made it a lot easier is talking through it non defensively i can describe what happened you know, that it was a very strong case and we wanted to take it to trial but the defendant had gone on television and had been on every major news network in my town. So that impacted a decision to settle. Things like that, that when you practice them and you work on how to say these things in a very objective, non-defensive way, it actually helps your own psychology to process things better as well. So there's a lot of personal benefit to doing expert witness work. And one of them is this kind of mindset.
1: Yeah. And I would imagine a good attorney is going to say like, I'm going to take you to the worst possible place. And I'm going to grill you about what, you know, make this look as bad as possible. So you can actually like, you know, you, you role play that, and then you can work the bugs out, hopefully. And and that will smooth things out when you're on the record as well.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yes. It's all it's practice until you still have to respond on the fly, because someone will still ask you something that you've just never thought of before. And so this gives you really good skills for problem solving, thinking on the fly, You know, sometimes you will use some template, sounds too robotic, but some prepared general responses that you'll find are very useful later. Or, you know, if someone's attacking you on something and you disagree, you can simply state, that's just not how I see that, and helps diffuse situations in in
1: different ways. So we've got depositions. You said most cases don't go to trial, that less than 5% number. I didn't know what that number was. That's an interesting data point for me. What does the rest of the process look like after the initial? Interrogation,
0: right? And the minority of my cases have have n- only gone to deposition too. So the majority have not. I've done fewer than twenty. I'd have to look at my records, but fewer than twenty depositions out of almost two hundred cases in which I've been retained. And you know, there are other experts who have done hundreds of depositions. You know, people who really do this as a high volume practice. You know, for forensic pathologists. Uh, psychiatrists, some of those folks will really do high volume expert work, and others of us may not be doing quite as many of those cases. So for most of us, it will look like you review a case initially, you'll have a conversation with the attorney about whether or not you think someone acted above or below the standard of care, which is basically summarized: what would someone reasonably do in similar circumstances in a different uh, situation? And it's it's just it's reasonable and reasonably similar. It's not what would Harvard do? What would the person with gold-plated insurance do? It's not these kinds of extremes. It's what's the average circumstance in a reasonably similar area. And so that's the standard that you're generally applying. And then they'll figure out, do you fit into their thoughts for this case? And sometimes cases move forward whether or not you give a favorable opinion. So you may think nobody did anything wrong and the case might still move forward because there's a different expert who has a different role to play and they move forward with that angle. If you find that no one did anything wrong, sometimes your opinion is the one that is the deciding factor that a case is not filed or not pursued. So it really depends. There's a lot of roles to play. And this is why in part, it's important not to restrict your work to defense or plaintiff or come in with a bias towards one or the other. Also, like you said, with contracts, avoiding financial ties to your employer where they get a cut of your expert work, all of this can be seen as bias. So you just don't want those things in there. There's, you know, it's your free time. So, you know, you could, you should structure it, but also with that potential that. You don't want to introduce bias or ways that your opinions could become unfounded. So many states will require an affidavit. That's an official document that says, yes, I think someone did something wrong, basically, or that something should have been done differently. That will get filed. The lawsuit is filed. And then they go into a process of discovery. They get information from both sides. They may do depositions. They may even depose the uh, plaintiff if that person is alive family members. They may get other people involved to see what is the scope of this case. And then you'll go through the legal process of whether or not it goes to trial. And this can be years in the making. You know, I've had cases that took four plus years to resolve. And you know, some of them are more too. too. COVID has really thrown a wrench into the normal workings of things in the court system. But these are at least a few years. So this is not the job to pursue when you have retired and are looking to begin doing some side income. I mean, everyone's gonna retire at some point probably, but this is something to begin when you're doing active clinical practice.
1: How many of the, you know, 20, 200 cases, 20 depositions, do you have any
0: courtroom experiences? One of my cases went to trial and they took my deposition beforehand to use as trial testimony. So that has a special term in Virginia called a de bene essay deposition where they then record it. We did it with Zoom. They recorded it and then they admitted it and they played it at the trial and it was utilized as trial testimony. But none of my cases has gotten to the point of an in-person trial where I was there in person.
1: Can you talk a little bit about, one of the things that I've you know heard about as I've talked to just friends about this topic is the idea of sort of the politics of it and the record that you build. And if you're you know, always the plaintiff guy or gal or always the defense guy or gal, or the idea that maybe you'll be seen among your peers as someone who, if you're always on the plaintiff side, like you're the doctor who's like the turncoat who is you're selling out your comrades can you talk a little bit about just the, the the emotional complexities of trying to think through that?
0: I think that's a challenge that prevents a lot of doctors doing this work is that they've been told that doing expert witness work is doing work against physicians. But that's really not true. It's but that's the, the myth that prevents a lot of people from from taking this on. And by evaluating the medicine By looking at the decision-making process, the information that was available at the time and making a decision without putting on that retrospective scope where you're looking backwards in time and trying to Monday morning quarterback what happened, that's going to lead you to objective opinions about the material itself. It's not about the person and avoiding that kind of skew or bias I think is important for your own reputation as an expert and to make sure that you're doing the best work. Anecdotally, I do hear attorneys make comments, particularly about uh, some of the opposing side's experts. Oh, that guy? Yeah, he does this all the time and he makes that same argument all the time. Or, yep, every time she writes a report, this is what goes in there. And so, yes, people do see patterns. It's a small enough world that you can be known as somebody who, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, people may catch on. That's where the flexibility of thinking and applying all your skills comes in.
1: And a good lawyer, presumably. I'm a. i am did mock trial in high school, so <laughs> it's basically like a law degree. Just kidding, guys. And I, 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 I remember like the early on, spent a lot of time with my fellow nerds, like getting trained to think in these ways. And then when you are someone that builds that kind of record, what happens in like the closing argument is like, oh, Doctor Smith, you know, 174 times they've done this and 168 of them have been as a plaintiff witness and every single, like 162 of those use the same thing. Like, is that somebody who really has credibility? So as you are a physician building a track record, you want to think about these things, look at it from every angle. And obviously you're, if you're still practicing clinically and you, you have a professional reputation to uphold, there's kind of guardrails. And I think you make a great point, Dr. Green. Like, if you look at things objectively and you the the reasonable physician standard, I think it will keep you out of trouble nine times out of 10. But it's something to be aware of that it's a, a new dynamic to your sort of like prospective career management that hasn't existed once you dip a toe in this water.
0: Right. And we're well prepared for this because medicine is dynamic. Knowledge changes. We don't practice the exact same way that we did before, you know, even in my career as a radiologist, especially, we have such quick technology developments that we have to keep up with that things don't stay the same for very long. And so having that flexibility of thinking where you're at least willing to say, how might I be having a different opinion about this now due to this new information? And that's not flip-flopping. That's not that's not the same as giving the other person the opinion you think they want to hear, which a lot of experts go wrong doing this they think well this is the plaintiff's attorney so they're they're wanting me to tell them how it went wrong in this case you just can't start that way you just you know sometimes i don't even remember if it's a plaintiff's or defense attorney who's called me i try to like blur it in my mind or go a little fuzzy as i'm reviewing the case and just focus on the facts and so that helps me to also do that but when you're when you're open to new information that might change, and you acknowledge that, and yet you're still firm in your opinions where they are supported and supportable, that's the balance you want to
1: achieve, I think. Have you seen any mistakes made by physicians who kind of have their training wheels on, they're doing their first couple forays into this area, and maybe they make a mistake?
0: The number one thing that physicians do wrong is under charge. Hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure at some point this could come back to be an in, in-deposition if they say, well, you know, you're advertising, you're money-grubbing. No, I am always advocating to, for people to get paid what they are worth, for them to get paid appropriately within a range of a market value and that is known in this business. So but, the reasons behind undercharging are the same mistakes that I see doctors make, again, with contracts. Well, I just started, so I can't charge that higher number because I'm new at this. Well, yes, it's it's possible that later you might increase your fees a little, but that's not really how it works in expert witness work. You tend to just bill at the level that that specialty bills at. And so the ones who typically bill on the higher end are surgical subspecialties, Ophthalmology, neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, et cetera. Those are typically towards that $900 range. But you may have someone who is the world expert forensic psychiatrist in a certain thing, and they may bill reasonably at that rate as well. There's no book, there's no rule, and the the salary police are not going to come and tell you that you broke the law with that salary. But when people, think they're not worth more. That's where people really, from a mindset standpoint, go wrong, that we somehow are not expert enough. You know, and that's physicians, often this is another thing that stops them from becoming expert witnesses. They think, well, I, I don't know how to do that legally. So you know, I'm not an expert at that. You know, I, I'm just a doctor. Like that's crazy thinking, right? You had to go through high school and college and med school and training and boards and all these things. No doctor is just anything. And so having the proper mindset that lets you set your fees appropriately and reasonably, it is going to ultimately help you do your best work. Nobody does good work when they're underpaid and undervalued.
1: Absolutely. It sounds like you do a lot of the same mindset training for your fellow physicians that I do for some of my clients and friends as well. It's so important. And it really is the foundation. The belief precedes the outcome, and you've got to calibrate that first. And then the rest will often work itself out.
0: Tell us a little bit about the course. So, Expert Witness Startup School started in 2020. It was the middle of the pandemic at the beginning phase, I would say, that summer when Courts were closed, lawyers finally had some time on their hands, and coincidentally, so did doctors. And I think this is something nobody ever saw happening, right? We never thought that doctors would be up to two-thirds of the time either furloughed or have the pay cut. And people were looking to engage each other, I think, for mutual benefit. So lawyers needed doctors to review cases, but were afraid to call because they thought we were all busy saving everyone from covid doctors on the other hand were wondering how they were going to pay their mortgage and how they could put their skills to work in some other ways i think the again the mindset of having our jobs you know, possibly be what kills us literally you know what that mortality was very top of mind for everyone And physicians in particular did a lot of soul searching and said, okay, what do I really want to do with my life? What would happen if I caught COVID in the ICU taking care of my patients and I died? And so people started thinking maybe a little bit more flexibly about what do I get joy from doing? And for me, it's that educational aspect. I love the problem solving of expert work. I love working with lawyers. I love thinking differently about the medicine and being able to teach in that role and translate the technology that I've learned to work with every day. And it makes me a better doctor, which ultimately helps patients get better care because it keeps me on my toes, keeps me current with research, just really helps me stay engaged and be my best doctor self that I can be as an expert as well. So I founded the school in order to do an online platform that would extend these skills out so that doctors didn't have to learn through trial and error, but instead could learn from my experience and put it to work from them faster. So it's currently a four-week course. New for January 2023 will be that all of the course is available at once, so Pros and cons to doing that. But now you want to binge it like on Netflix, you want to get the fastest start possible. You can do that. You can do all the modules, which take you through the anatomy of a lawsuit from that first call that you get from a lawyer all the way up to building this into a business. So I take you through the anatomy of a lawsuit, your involvement how to organize yourself, how to do the business side, and then ultimately how to grow the business if that's what you choose to do in whatever way that you want. So that's how the course really came about. Again, that intent was truly to help and to connect and to network. And the very wonderful side benefit is when I hear from my students like David Gutman, that when I hear from students who have put these skills to work, they are... They're not looking at just the bottom line. They are buying their lives back with additional income and skills. They're taking a day off per week to spend with their toddler. They're no longer doing nights and weekends. They are changing their lives to do other things in ways that are making a tremendous difference in their life in the community. That has been the most amazing thing now, having had hundreds of students go through this course, is seeing them really living in a way that we all hoped would be possible after COVID and they're making it a reality.
1: Awesome. And that right there, Dr. Green, is why I am such a big fan of your work and really appreciate your the way you've taken time out of your life to create this infrastructure for others to be able to walk this path. I think it's a beautiful thing. Thank you very much for joining us today on APM Success. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
0: Thank you so much for having me and all the work that you're doing for financial literacy to benefit physicians.
1: If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.